Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology on the New Books Network. We are Ellis Jones, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Jerry Lemke, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross. Our guest for this edition is Hilary Schutt, author of Disaster Drawn, Visual Witness, Comics, and Documentary Form. It's recently out in print from Harvard University Press. Hilary Shute is an associate professor of English at the University of Chicago and is currently a visiting professor at Harvard. We're very pleased to be with Hilary for the next 50 minutes or so. Hilary, you've written just a great book, and we Thank want you. to get to the substance of it in just a few seconds. But let's start with the obvious first question, the question that must be on the minds of many listeners. Why is a Harvard professor reading comics? <laughs> well, so um, one of the things that I've been doing in, in my career so far as an English professor is trying to call people's attention to the idea that the medium of comics is something that should be studied in literature departments. Um, it's a narrative form. It's a form that's about how narrative happens through both words and images, and in my view, this is definitely the purview of literature. And so, so ha- have you actually found much resistance within uh, academia to studying comics or graphic novels? Is it a little, uh, is it seen as still somewhat illegitimate, like as if you were, say, studying video games, being a bit fringe? <laughs> well, that's, um, that's such a great question, because I actually do have a colleague at the University of Chicago who studies video games. So <laughs> he and I came into the English department um, the same year, and there I was, a specialist in comics, and there he was, a specialist in video games. So I, I think that, by and large, people are interested in an expansive definition of literature. Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't been met with a lot of resistance from within the academy. I mean, it's worth noting but I think the academy can be a little bit more slow, for example, um, on the uptake than... Be careful now, you're being recorded. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm I'm so excited to be teaching at Harvard this term, um, and I am teaching Harvard English Department's first dedicated course on comics and Hmm. graphic novels. So I think it's something um, that's sort of slowly coming to the Academy, but it's not something that I've actually been met with a lot of resistance for studying. I I think we'll probably come back to um, the question of comics in the classroom uh, uh, later on, because um, a lot of our listeners, of course, are teachers and and college professors and, and, (laughs) you know, wondering um, how comics fit in into the course uh, course syllabi, but um, let's let's turn now to the subject matter of, of the book itself. Okay, you focus on the work of uh, three late twentieth century authors: um, the Japanese writer Keiji Nakazawa and um, Art Spiegelman and uh, Joe Sacco. Um, can you just give our listeners a brief a synopsis of uh, their work and? Um, and why you chose those three to focus on in your book? Sure, um, my great pleasure. So, um, Art Spiegelman is uh, an author who I always knew would be central to this book. Um, Art Spiegelman is the cartoonist behind what is probably the most famous uh, graphic novel in the world, which is Mouse, A Survivor's Tale, which is um, actually a work that came out in two volumes in 1986 and in 1991. And Mouse is a story of a cartoonist son trying to 
solicit and then trying to visualize the testimony of his Polish uh, Auschwitz survivor father. So it, it became widely known when it um, first appeared as the comics work that basically made um, serious subject matter okay for the comics. And Mouse was actually awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 1992. Um, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. So Mouse really shifted the entire terrain of what was possible in comics. And so um, Spiegelman is a, is a central figure in my work. Uh, he was actually born in Sweden after the war in 1948, and he immigrated with his family um, and eventually uh, landed in Rigo Park, Queens, where he grew up. And um, Spiegelman is, is perhaps the only public intellectual cartoonist that I know of. Um, there are now starting to be others, but, you know, Spiegelman was weighing in heavily in all sorts of different um, media outlets after the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Hmm. He's become a sort of sought-after voice, both as a cartoonist himself and as a historian of the power of visual images. Hmm. So... Now what about really uh, my work? Yeah, one of the, uh, what about uh, uh, Sako and and uh, Nakasawa? Right. So um, the 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 way that I sort of um, uh, frame this book is by this question of uh, witness to war and disaster. So Spiegelman and Mouse is a secondary witness um, to his his parents' experience in the death camps. Keiji Nakazawa um, was a Japanese cartoonist, he actually died in 2012, who was six years old when the atomic bomb was dropped, um, you know, over Hiroshima City on August 6, 1945. So he is a survivor of the atomic bomb blast, and he went on to basically create an entire subfield of Japanese comics, um, which are called manga, um, which is called Atomic Bomb Manga. So... I got really interested in the fact that um, in 1972, Nakazawa did a first-person comic work called I Saw It about his experience on that day. And that 1972 was also the same year that Spiegelman did a comic strip version of what would later become the book Mouse um, that was simply called Mouse about his parents' experience. So something was happening in the early 70s both in Japan and in the U.S., where comics started to become a form that was seen as um, a form that could really carry the weight of something as serious as witnessing war. And Joe Sacco is sort of a, a, a person in the next generation, and he is a person who works in the genre that he has helped to popularize, which is called comics journalism. The the, uh, the 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 timeline there, um, the early early nineteen seventies, um, particularly for Nakasawa and um, and and Spiegelman, um, makes me think that it being right after the war in Vietnam, um, yeah, is I don't that catches my catches my attention. Um, is there a is there a point to be made there? About the timeline and and uh, the appearance of this this narrative form uh, so soon after the war in Vietnam. Absolutely, um, that's that's a great question. So so the Vietnam War actually plays a big part in the history that I'm um, sketching out in in this book. Mm-hmm. So underground comics, um, which is to say comics that are distributed and published um, outside of mainstream channels um, really uh, appeared in the mid-60s or the late 60s in the U.S., and they were 100% connected to the underground press in the United States, um, which dates to about 1965, Mm -hmm. and was itself um, shaped by the anti-war movement in the counterculture and... um, you know, left-wing politics and aesthetics. So this very important comic scene comes out of underground publishing, which itself comes out of, um, you know, anti-Vietnam War um, mm. culture and 
protesting. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, and then the other part of it is that I started trying to think about why this handwritten, hand-drawn form didn't sort of emerge, but but rather re-emerged in the 70s mm-hmm. as a form for bearing witness to war and disaster. And part of what I argue in Disaster Gone is that the televisual um, saturation created by the Vietnam War, you know, obvious in, you know, the way it was referred to as the so-called living room war, um, was part of what led cartoonists in that period to think of comics as a form for bearing witness to war instead of photography or film or video. So it, it was kind of a reaction then to um, an overflow of um, kind of televisual documentation that, that it was almost like a um, a counterweight. Did they they find it as a kind of almost a protest or a, or an injection of diversity? Um. Yes. Um. I, I I think that that is what I'm arguing. I don't know if it's so much an injection of diversity as rather the desire to create um, work clearly done by one hand mm-hmm. and one body and one person and not sort of um, fed to the public by sort of impersonal cameras and mm-hmm. sort of streamed into people's living rooms. I think the desire was to do work that was about first person witnessing Um so when Nakazawa's um, comic book called I Saw It in Japanese, it would be Ore Wamita, gets translated in the U.S. It's, it's 1982 at this point. But there weren't that many works, for example, um, in the U.S. at that time that were first-person accounts from a non-Western perspective of what it was like to survive the atomic bomb blast. Hmm. So there's something about the the intimacy that comics creates and evokes by being handwritten that I think is both politically positioned against the sort of highest tech of high technology, which is the atomic bomb. And it's also about creating an accessible and a personal um, medium that could reach people. um, As as you're saying, uh, um, the, the, the work that you that you're focusing on in the book is mid twentieth century um but I learned an awful lot from the book from the first chapters um which is the long history of graphic novels um that goes back to the 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 fifteen hundreds and 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 even earlier so I'm wondering if you yeah. could sort of briefly you know tell our listeners who some of those artists are who laid the groundwork for what we have today and the historical context in which they did their work. Sure. So um, that that was one of the major um, important points that I wanted to make in Disaster Drawn, that, you know, like I said before, this work didn't just sort of emerge, um, sort of, you know, out of nowhere in the 70s, and hence we have the graphic novel field today, but that this work is connected to these really um, deep and profound histories of bearing witness to war and disaster, both through words and images, but also specifically um, through printed words and images. Yes, the combination of words and and images, that's, that's very interesting. Right, and so one could sort of go back really as far as one wanted if one is thinking about Hmm. the combination Hmm. of words and images and um, war or, you know, one could go back to attic phases, for example, that, you know, depicted war um, on the vases or, you know, other other media like that. But I got interested in the idea that um, there was work being done that was bearing witness to war that was interested in, in circulating and being accessible. And so that led me to Jacques Callot, mm-hmm. uh, the French master printmaker, who I think really created this idiom in a meaningful way in uh, 1633, 
when he published a series of um, 18 etchings, so images with verse inscribed um, below them that uh, were images bearing witness to the Thirty Years' War. So this work was called The Miseries of War, and uh, it, it profoundly influenced people like Francisco Goya in his famous Disasters of War series. Yeah. And um, that was a work that, that Goya did um, in the 1810s. And were you about to ask another question? <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I just, um, again, uh, I think that that's just such an important part of the book, and and um, uh, I suspect that a lot of people would don't know about those earlier artists, and thus could not make the connection between what was done several centuries ago and and what we see now. Um, well, um. Thank you for saying so. I mean, for years, you know, I spent a lot of time um, working with cartoonists. I collaborated with Art Spiegelman on a book about mouse called MetaMouse. Um, and I've taught a course with the cartoonist Alison Bechtel. And I spent a lot of interviews with cartoonists. I like talking to them. I like talking to them about their production practices and their ideas. And I had been hearing for so long people talking about being influenced by Francisco Goya. Mm-hmm. And um, I had just been so fascinated by that for so many years and this book is my attempt to really unpack that connection and the more I looked sort of the more I found so I was you know um, profoundly moved by the idea that you know Goya was was primarily a a painter and he was a court artist Mm -hmm. and that he did his um, print work um, in a sort of different idiom that was separate from the work that he did that was commissioned. And so he really is the figure who became, in, in some critics' views, you know, the first artist reporter that we can look to. Wow. And the whole idiom of the artist reporter going in and reporting on war has just been so key for what comics can do today. The, the portrayal of, of war trauma... Is, is very central to the graphic novels that interest you, going all the way back to Goya. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about um, graphic novels um, and why they seem to be such an efficacious form uh, for the consideration of, of war trauma. Well, I, th- I think there are a couple of different answers to this. And... Um one of them is is historical, and and that's just to say that I feel that people like the cartoonist Joe Sacco, who has revived or sort of recreated this idiom of comics journalism, um, are influenced by the figures of the artist reporters that we saw in the Crimean War, that we saw, you know, in the Illustrated News. Um, in London in the 1840s that we saw in the Civil War. So sort of the era of journalism um, for which it wasn't very easy to take pictures (laughs) on the battlefield. So there's this sort of long and proud tradition of, um, you know, the artist reporter out there um, sketching sketching what what he saw. And so I, I think there's something about drawing that can feel much more powerful and much more intimate for reporting this subject. And this is connected to what I was saying before around the Vietnam War. Hmm. So, you know, the idiom that one takes a a photograph, but one makes a picture. I think for work that is about witnessing, so for work like Keiji Nakazawa's where he's trying to tell an audience, I was there. I saw, you know, people's skin get burned off, you know, with my own eyes, you know, on the ground after, you know, we had been hit by the bomb. The fact that drawing is the medium that is conveying this story is a very powerful link between the reader and the artist. Um, There's something personal about it. There's something almost diary-like about it or manuscript-like about it. And I think for these very serious and, you know, even traumatic histories, that kind of connection 
um, that's introduced on the page through the fact that comics is done by hand is a, is a powerful link that makes comics an appealing form for learning about these kinds of histories. Do you think um, that these um, media may even have the potential to go beyond uh, war trauma? Do you think that graphic narratives um, allow us to access or engage with oh, events or changes that we're otherwise uh, likely to avoid because they may seem particularly dark or overwhelming? I start to think of things like... Um, people like Michael Moore or John Oliver or John Stewart using humor to allow uh, people to access social problems that might seem overwhelming. And I'm wondering if you see that potential in graphic novels, maybe even beyond war. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, in part because I think personally that um, sort of the whole idiom of, of humor that you just sketched out with reference to um, say um, John Oliver, but also you know people like Stephen Colbert and John Stewart. So the whole idea, for example, of like fake news—that's actually real news, right. or sort of you know news with humor. I think that this idiom was established by Mad Magazine in the 1950s. Hmm. So that whole sense of um, a media-aware media that's feeding you the news while at the same time highlighting its own sort of dubious status as a media form is something that Mad Magazine introduced. So, you know, Mad was a profound influence um, basically on, on every cartoonist I've ever met, in part because it was so self-reflexive about itself um, as comics. And, you know, there are historians and, and critics who will say, Mad Magazine really invented the 60s. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Mad Magazine was, you know, against everything that was sacrosanct. It was against mom. It was against apple pie, you know, this type of thing. It was against all of the sort of American cultural conventions um, and idioms and aesthetics. So, hmm. you know, Mad had Norman Rockwell parodies um, with, you know, the whole family you know, drinking beer and, uh, you know, feeding a baby beer through a bottle and the dog, you know, drinking a bowl full of beer. You know, things that were sort of the typical um, uh, sort of face of America got skewered by MAD. And so that right into... Do you see a MAD magazine for us today? Well, I think that, that comics have come to occupy that kind of place that, that Matt established in, in the 50s now in a really powerful way, which is to say it's a form where there can be a lot of humor and a form that's very much about um, social commentary. So, you know, I've been so so pleased to see, you know, comics is now doing all sorts of things that I didn't think, um, you know, were sort of possible before. So the New York Times now runs comics format book reviews in the Sunday book review section, for example. The whole idea of the comics essay has taken off. So Spiegelman has done comics essays for the Washington Post. Um, so I, I think it's becoming more and more recognized as exactly what you said, which is a form that can hit all sorts of different tones, including the humorous and including the very, um, you know, socially serious. Um. So I'm sure your your breadth of exposure to the various graphic novels that deal particularly with um, historical events um, and disasters is is wider than most people's. Are are there particular conflicts or even natural disasters that you think deserve a graphic narrative, but at the moment still there is none available? Wow, what a what a good question. Um, you know, so so sort of tracking what comics come out, I have to say that I've been more surprised in the past 10 or 15 years that there are comics about everything than by the fact that there are, are sort of events that deserve comics that don't have comics. <laughs> I think I've never, I've never thought about the question that you asked me. So... Um, you know, I think I would just say that one of the things that I've noticed 
is that right now we're in a very um, documentary-oriented time. And in my view, I think that comes, at least in the U.S., from 9-11 and the sort of, like, appetite for documentary that I think was, was created by, you know, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and the sort of aftermath um, and the war in Afghanistan um, and Iraq. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that that has been a time for the flowering of comics. So there has been some pretty powerful comics um, about Iraq and comics reporting. I would love to see more. So that's an area that I'm sort of um, looking toward, um, ho- hoping to see new work. Ellis just used the term graphic narratives, and maybe we've used that before in the conversation here. But um, it reminds me to to give you a chance to comment on the distinctions that you make, um, some of the distinctions you make in in your book between comics, um, that word, um, and graphic novels, which which we've both used here, and graphic narratives, and um, the documentary. Now, you, you have been using that term, the documentary form. So there's a, there's a lot of different terminology being thrown around here, and I'm wondering if it's are these terms as interchangeable as for most of us they would probably seem, you know, or you think that there are important distinctions um, to be made? I want to give you a chance to to uh, say something about that. Great. So I would say that the one distinction that I feel um, attached to <laughs> is that comics, is a medium. So I've actually written academic articles that then get, um, you know, uh, worked over by a, by a copy editor. And I've, ha- I've had to fight with people about the grammar of saying comics is, um, which, which I think uh, uh-huh. <laughs> people really resisted 10 years ago. And it's becoming, even though it sounds so awkward, now more part of the language. But, but what I argue, and others like Scott McCloud, who's an, an amazing comics theorist who did the work called Understanding Comics. So what, what we have all argued is that the comics is a medium, the way film is a medium, the way painting is a medium. So um, it is, in fact, correct to say comics is, however awkward it sounds. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm underscoring this isn't just as a, a hair-splitting thing about um, grammar, but because I think that most people who aren't used to thinking about comics sort of in their shorthand think of comics as a genre. And I would say if I have sort of like one polemical point in my work about comics, it's that comics is a medium Mm. that contains or, you know, produces many, many different genres like educational comics, romance comics, horror comics, you know, and of course the genre that I'm interested in, which is um, nonfiction and, and nonfiction about war. So that's that's the way I use comics. Now, in terms of graphic novels and graphic narratives, I've been writing sort of in my whole career. And my first book is also about comics nonfiction, about comics that are are not close to being novels, um, which is to say. These are works that are very invested in um, being autobiographical or being documentary or being reported or, um, you know, being in some ways what we think of when we think of um, nonfiction. So I, I, I sort of helped to popularize the term graphic narrative as an alternative to graphic novel. So my thinking behind that term graphic narrative is simply that graphic narrative seems more inclusive than graphic novel. So, uh, you know, graphic novel is basically a publishing term that took off in the 1980s um, in the wake of Art Spiegelman's success with Mouse. (laughs) But is Mouse a graphic novel? Um, You know, not really. Mouse is a a work Mm -hmm. of biography and autobiography, 
you know, it was nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award in the category of biography in 1986 when the first volume came out. So graphic novels can seem like a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. So, that, so that's my distinction between graphic narrative and graphic novel. Yeah, you mentioned um, uh, it in, in there that you had written some things uh, in academic academic journals. I have another kind of academic question <laughs> that uh, well, I love academic questions. So please bounces <laughs> off what you what you just said. You you describe Nakasawa's uh, work. I saw it. It's the title of of um, I guess his most famous work, as a, a quote, these are your words, a phenomenology of memory and trauma. Um, and you use that word phenomenology a couple more times in the book, uh, once um, speaking of Spiegelman's work. And um, while I love the word phenomenology, um, many listeners probably hear that as just a, a big academic word. And I, I, I want to give you a chance to say what you mean by it and why you think it's a particularly apt um, descriptor of comics like Nakazawa's. And what does it, what does its use uh, by you add to how we understand and what we understand about what uh, Nakazawa and Spiegelman are about? in the work that they do. It's your chance to, to lecture briefly on phenomenology. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, ho- hopefully, hopefully it won't sound like a lecture. So I would, I would say the, um, thank you for that, that question. So in the most basic way, um, we could think of phenomenology um, as the philosophical study of the structures of um, experience and consciousness and, Perceptions. So, what I specifically am interested in, in terms of the idea of phenomenology and comics, is around this idea of um, a phrase that I use in the book, which is uh, that comics can capture a kind of phenomenology of trauma. So. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, work, work that this, for us. <laughs> so, one of the things I'm interested in thinking about in terms of comics as a form for self-expression is this question of what is the first person in comics. So, I think already in our conversation, I've I've talked about how important I think the work of mark making is. Um, for a person who is bearing witness to his or her own yes. experience. That notion and of witness what, is really important, isn't it? Yeah. And so what I am interested in in comics is both that it's a form that can give us one person's optical view. So, for example, you mentioned um, Keiji Nakazawa. Um, we can see his version of what he saw sort of mm-hmm. from his point of view mm-hmm. in his comics work, I saw it, you know, which is about him surviving the atomic bomb blast. On the other hand, comics can also do this kind of externalizing visualization where he draws his own body within the frame. Mm-hmm. And so we see not only what he saw from his optical point of view, but we also pull back and see him externalized and see, for example, his body on the ground amidst the rubble, you know, when the school wall fell on him, when the bomb hit. So that comics can shuttle in and out of different points of view in a way that I find powerful for thinking about why comics is such a good form for capturing the experience and the consciousness of trauma, in which, for example, the sort of idea of -of out-of-body experience is quite common. Mm -hmm. We also see this with the way comics can capture the experience of time that people have in traumatic um, situations where time is either frozen 
or, or slowed down or sometimes sped up. Mm-hmm. Um, because comics in its most sort of fundamental procedure is, is about turning time into space on the page through the mechanism of, you know, comic frames or panels. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that maybe starts to answer just in a basic way why phenomenology as a philosophy of experience and, and consciousness mm-hmm. is something that I think comics um, traffics in. I, I really liked the, the way you brought out for us the, 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 the way that the artists put themselves uh, in, into the images. Uh, so right. We see Spiegelman portrayed as listening to his father's experience. Uh, the, the stuff with Sacco was, I thought was just really good. Um, we see, we see him as he's written himself into the story. Right. In a way that I think is very, yeah. very powerful because he's showing us not just the testimony. So not just sort of the end result, but he's showing us the scene of testimony because, you know, for many, for many people sort of, um, scholars of testimony and trauma and witnessing testimony, isn't a sort of a a pure thing that a person, you know, can just deliver. Like you Mm -hmm. access the testimony from the shelf of your memory and deliver it. It's something that happens in an interlocutionary way. It's something that happens between two people. And so I think Sacco is brilliant at sort of showing us the scenes and, and showing us the scene that produces the testimony that drives this work. Well, and addition, he's, showing us, he's showing us the, the knower right. in, the, in the scene that is being known by the knower. The, wit, the witness. Right. He, he is showing us, right. he portrays the witness in the scene that the witness is witnessing. Um, right. And so to me, um, that's also a sort of um, profoundly interesting ethical act to try mm-hmm. to access and inhabit the testimony of another to that degree right. um, that you draw it with that level of, of accuracy and attention to the other and the other in the scene. Right. So um, that's sort of one of the most fascinating parts of Sacco's work for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have to admit, um, Hillary, I was a comic collector when I grew up as a kid, and I'm a fan oh, of, yay. of graphic <laughs> novels now. And so so this question comes from a, a fan's perspective. Um, I'm just wondering if we can talk about this tension that might exist between comics and graphic narratives as this fringe form of media that adds to kind of adds a diversity to our media landscape, brings us something somewhat unique and wonderful that wasn't there before on the one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, graphic novels or narratives as just one more nail in the coffin of the standard book. (laughs) Which, you know, if we go to somebody like Neil Postman, um, we see him mourning things uh, like the central role of books in our culture, um, not just as a loss of kind of deep literacy, um, but also the loss of the ability to think deeply. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk about that tension, because on the one hand, you know, one of the things I always loved about the visual media of of comics is is there was a kind of um, international, you know, literacy in some ways was partially optional. You know, it could be trans. I, I read comics in different languages, even though I didn't access the, all the languages or all the words of the languages. And so, yes, I, I'm so fascinated by that when that happens. Right, and so like there's something what you get from the images. Right, right. It's almost like music in that way. There's something that. It, doesn't need translation necessarily. Um, and yet, um, there's also something that is so easily consumed is also a little bit like fast food. And when we go back to Postman, I think about, you know, the loss in our kind of internet, social media ready culture. 
of, you know, the ability to think by reading slowly and pausing and thinking through books? So I love this question because um, I sort of couldn't disagree more <laughs> with <laughs> the implication, and I'm not, I'm not sort of um, assigning this to you, but just the implication in the question that, you can prove me wrong. that <laughs> comics represents a loss of literacy or a loss of the ability to think deeply or a loss of um, the standard book. So one of the things that I'm so compelled by um, in terms of the contemporary comics field is that it's on one hand a form that is deeply invested in its history as a democratic art form, as a mass medium, as accessible, as circulatable, as sort of like a form for the people. On the other hand, we see comics as a location of incredibly sophisticated narrative technique, and what's more, as a location of contemporary print culture. So comics is a form that's actually saving the idea of the book as object today. Hmm. Um, graphic novels are works in which the end papers are important. The indicia page is important. The copyright page is important. The table of contents page is important. They have fold-outs, right? Chris Ware's um, book from 2012, Building Stories, which I'm teaching this week in my class at Harvard, is a book in a box that has 14 different discrete print elements inside it. This is what the world of graphic novels is delivering us today. Deep attention to the materiality of the book. So Joe Sacco, you know, a central figure in Disaster John, is a comics journalist, and he has said that he sees himself as doing what he calls slow journalism, right? Mm -hmm. In his mind, the difference between his journalism in comic form and the journalism that we see on the nightly news and on the internet is that his work is explicitly about texture, about density of lived lives on the ground. You can't get through his... Um, pages very easily. There's so much detail. There's so many swarming pictures and words. Um, uh, it's, it's actually a sort of antidote to the hyperactivity of the, the news cycle. So, you know, uh, comics today have become a form that uh, is sometimes even hard to decode, which is a word that Edward Said uses in the introduction to Joe Sacco's um, Palestine, which came out as a, as a book collection in the year 2000. He said, I don't know if, um, you know, you know, people will really even have the patience to decode Sacco's hmm. work. Hmm. So comics represent something that is actually about a pretty complicated form of literacy. And that's verbal literacy, as we see in the words, and it's a visual literacy. And I don't think that we can take that visual literacy for granted. I think in comics, um, visual literacy is a pretty complex thing. It's, it's hard to know how to read a page of comics sometimes. Well, I think as a, um, as a Where comics does your eye go? What do you look at first? I think as a comic nerd, uh, I couldn't have hoped for a better answer than the one you just gave. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for that question. I feel very, very strongly about this. Um, <laughs> comics, uh, you know, people might not expect it, right? But comics hmm. is actually um, the opposite of one more nail in the coffin of the standard book. Hmm. It's like holding up the standard book. It can't be reflowed for the digital format the way Ulysses can, you know? Do, do you see The way what, any novel can. Hmm. <laughs> uh, do you see what what you do with with your book as a form of of decoding the the work of the people that you're writing about? I do. So, yeah. I mean, I'm hoping I'm hoping to model what it's like to take these comic pages seriously, mm -hmm. which is to say to not only read the words, but to do close readings of the images. Hmm, yeah. So that's, that's very important to me in this book, to sort of not, not take the image for granted, but to slow down enough 
the way I think these works are asking us to do to sort of parse them out and, and also to talk about their ambiguity and their ambivalences as images, mm-hmm. um, which to me is part of the literary quality of the work. Beyond what you said about about the, the course that you're teaching now at, at Harvard, are are there ways in which um, your, your growing familiarity with with comics, the comic form, um, has changed your own approach uh, to to teaching um, the way you present material in the classroom. I'm I'm wondering if your if your course syllabi have have gutters <laughs> on, 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 on them. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the, the pedagogy question. And is there a pedagogy embedded in in the comics form? Well, I, I wish I could say that my syllabi have gutters. That's such, that's such a lovely um, image. <laughs> well, that's also uh, the invitation to you to explain to listeners what a gutter is. Okay. So um, the gutter has been for me one of the most suggestive pieces of comics language. So the gutter is the space, in the, gutter, the gutter in, in comics terminology is, is what we call the space in between the panels. Mm-hmm. And one could also say that the gutter is the space around the panels on the page. So the gutter could also be the, the margin um, uh before a panel or sort of after the last panel on a page. Mm -hmm. And it's the space where readers project causality. So if comics presents a series of punctual moments, which is to say moments that are conventionally supposed to represent, you know, one moment of time, the gutter is where time passes on a page of comics. Mm -hmm. So the gutter could represent one beat. It could represent years. It could represent days. It could represent minutes. And it could represent as it sort of always actually does, an ambiguous amount of time because that amount of time is really up to the reader to figure out. So in my, in my courses, I, I think I've been so keen to construct coherent <laughs> <laughs> histories and aesthetics for my students um, in, in studying comics because this is a fairly new form for the academy but I wouldn't say my syllabi have a lot of gutters, but I would say, and thank you so much for the invitation to think about this, that um, actually in connection with the previous question, I think that teaching comics has taught me more and more about comics' connection to really rich and deep histories of the book. So it's become evident to me in my classes that this is something I want to make legible in, in a really um, material way for my students. So at the University of Chicago, I've worked um, pretty extensively with librarians from special collections um, there, both to um, collect comics and also to put together exhibits that speak to the rich history of comics. And at Harvard, you know, just last week, I um, took my students to the Houghton Library, which is the, you know, rare books and manuscripts library at Harvard, and we had uh, a session there in which we looked at uh, medieval block books from the 1460s wow. as part of this history of print that leads to the contemporary comic book. Hmm. And so it's been really meaningful for me to try to connect students with those kinds of histories. And I, and I think that um, teaching comics over years and years has led me um, – to see just how important it is to actually show them the object, you know, mm. to, to make that visit to Houghton, to let them touch the pages of a book from the 1460s um, and learn about how it was printed. You know, a book that's a sequential narrative. Um, you know, even if it's a story, an allegorical story that's quite different than the stories that we're reading in class. Have you uh, yourself ever considered creating a graphic novel? Well, I'm staring at it now because it's, um, you know, on my mantelpiece, but I, I, the only creative thing I've ever done in comics is a one-page series of gag strips that I did with the cartoonist Alison Bechtel, 
um, about the, you know, philosopher and um, theorist Roland Barthes. So it was tough enough work to do a one-page piece. Uh, I think I'd rather be the person who decodes them than the person who does them at this point in my career. And, you know, part of what I'm always trying to um, call people's attention to is how laborious it is to create comics. Mm. It's a form that can look very easy, and that's part of the beauty of it, but there's so much work that goes into making something that, um, you know, reads seamlessly and smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be the last question, but um, do you have any recommendations for um, readers out there well, besides the Spiegelman, Sacco, Nakazawa? Um, what do you think is interesting for them to read these days? So um, I would highly recommend... Riyadh Satouf's book that came out this past fall um, in translation in English for the first time called The Arab of the Future. So um, this is work by a cartoonist who's uh, partially French and partially Syrian. And he was um, the first, and I think, although I'm not positive about this, the only cartoonist of um, Arab descent to be uh, a Charlie Hebdo contributor in France. Hmm. So he's a pretty interesting figure. And um, this book, uh, which is called The Arab of the Future, has sort of taken France by storm and was just translated this past fall. And so it's a book that's a memoir about a time in his life when he lived um, with his parents in Libya um, as a child. So uh, there are further volumes in this series that will be translated soon, but it's a sort of fascinating look into growing up um, with a with a, a French mother and a father who, you know, felt much more at home in uh, Arab countries and, you know, brought his family to live in Syria and in Libya um, when his son was very small. So I recommend this work highly. Interesting. Well, I think that's... Um that's our last question, Hillary. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, this well, I really great. appreciate being, being with you. Thank you.